happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. My name is Jason Neifer, and I'm the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, and this is the EdTech Situation Room, episode number 114, and it's the 14th of November, 2018. And joining me as always, Dr. Wes Fryer. Good evening, Wes. How are you this evening? I am wonderful, and it is great to hear you sharing that introduction. So it was great to have, have you back last week, and glad to be back in the saddle, as it were. So I, I keep on looking at your map, though, and thinking I'm going to need to do something. I, I need to get one of those maps from uh, Australia and New Zealand, right, that inverts the world and you know, right, has, right, right. has a little yeah. bit of a different, different perspective there. What is the, what's covering Alaska, by the way? Um, it is a sticker from a band I saw a couple weeks ago, so okay. nothing, nothing more impressive right, Is this a statement about Alaskans or anything no, like that? No, no. So. Alaskans, good people. So okay. I, I love Alaska. So Very good. So um, lots going on in the tech world this week, and I want to do. I do want to note: no one's used my term "technology correction" yet. Um, although when someone stumbles into it, I, I hope that people will jump up and give me credit for the concept. But a lot of things this week are kind of all about we're starting to wring our hands once again about what to do about this and how to balance things out. And for those of you that tuned in last week, you know that the New York Times article about uh, uh, wealthy people going to school. That, that kind of back off of tech, and now that's the new digital divide. There's a strong candidate reaction to that. I think you're going to find tonight that there are more things related to that in regards to the news. But for those of you that this is their first time turning in, first welcome to our humble podcast. We hope you enjoy uh, our, our analysis about current events in the ed tech world as it relates uh, particularly to classrooms. Um, but we tend to take up 10, 15 topics a week and discuss them, sometimes more, sometimes less. And you can always find every article we refer to at our website, edtechsr.com, where our show notes are always available. So with that in mind, Wes, where would you like to start this week? Well, um, let's let's go to uh, Article 9 uh, from Wired, which is uh, on November 1st. The, colleges, the college kids doing what Twitter won't. Um, this is a fascinating piece about moderation of fake news, identification of bad actors, uh, the way in which two UC Berkeley campus students have been trying to address these issues, uh, specifically on Twitter. And they uh, had launched a Chrome browser extension that inserts a button onto every Twitter profile uh, that, that reads snappily bot check me. And so uh, this is trying basically to focus on bot bots in US politics and hunting down propaganda. And it's this is really interesting. Several of the articles or some of the other articles we've we've got are talking about like due process and the ways in which tech companies, you know, there are companies pushing for more transparency and appeal processes and, and things like that. And so anyway, this um, is, is interesting to see, to see these uh, students tackling this. And I um, think it's pretty fascinating to think about the modification of the feed, right? There was a, I think Geek of the Week that we talked about a few weeks ago, it's Britannica's, let me see if I can find it, which basically uh, prioritizes Britannica's, um, if I can spell Britannica, um, I have to Google it so I can spell it right. Isn't that a sign of the times? Um, so you install their extension and it's going to um, elevate their 
vetted sources in your feed. Huh. And so I'm not, I'm not finding it, but anyway, so we, we need to have, it's called Britannica insights. Um, and so it's supposedly a Chrome extension to fix false, false uh, Google results. It's really good to see the um, acknowledgement in, in some of these circumstances for, yes, your feed is the product of an algorithm. Yes. Your, your feed is not necessarily, you know, equal to someone else's feed, but it's pretty fascinating to see all of this play out because as we might talk about with uh, the Facebook PBS frontline special um, it's, it's just so glaringly obvious that Facebook in particular totally has missed the boat and is trying, you know, scrambling to, to catch up. Uh, But this, this challenge of um, how do we not become consumed with polarization and fracturization and, and, you know, outlier, um, viewpoints, um, and just have kind of a more balanced and civil discourse as a society is com- is a complete open question right now. So good article and, you know, good to see folks outside of the companies trying to take this into their own hands. Absolutely. And it's not surprising to me that, uh, that part of the reaction here to the broader, uh, question of social media and, and its impact negatively on, uh, culture, uh, interactions, whether human beings, ultimately politics, uh, would, would, there are people looking for technological solutions to do that to empower you as an end user to make good decisions. I think that part of what I, I always think about when I read articles like this, that they are useful tools, but I think about some, uh, um, I guess arguments I had with non-bots. Uh, this is particularly in the during the 2016 election season, and it still relies on the fact that you rely that you trust the tool that's making the decision for you about helping you decide whether a source is legitimate or not. I'll give you an example of this. I think the website Snopes is a pretty legitimate uh, website, and they'll tell you, trust us not because we're right, trust us because we show our sources, right? You can always go to the bottom of a Snopes article, and they will pull in sources from multiple locations to try to confirm something that's right or wrong, and they always do a lot of research before they try to post an analysis on whether something is correct or not on the internet. And um, I had gotten into the habit during the, the, the 2015-16 election season to post Snope articles pretty frequently on Facebook when things um, were clearly uh, of a dubious uh, origin. And as it turns out, I had people push back against me because Snopes was vi- biased, right? And to be honest, I don't, like, I, I've seen them call out right-wing and left-wing things pretty equally, that, that there are memes and, you know, f- fake news actors from both sides of, of, of the coin um, that uh, ultimately were shared quite frequently on, on social media like Facebook and Twitter. But, you know, it's kind of, we, we, it's also figuring out a way to trust the resources that are helping you make those good decisions. And I'm glad we're struggling with this because I think this is going to be our way to figure out how to, um, you know, move this away from dystopian politics and more towards a way to empower people to make good democratic decisions in 2018. The website they've created that has these extensions, and they are also available not just for Chrome, but also for Firefox and Safari, which is interesting because I didn't realize you could that Safari was extensible in that way. But it's called botcheck.me. That is the URL. And um, pretty fascinating in terms of the ways in which they're going about identifying, you know, even with direct messages. And and some of these are evidently set up to engage and, pro- and possibly to have a human, you know, jump into a conversation if they're if they're being, 
you know, kind of tested it and probed a little bit. And this, this is absolutely fascinating, right? The march of artificial intelligence, you know, I, I got to, I got to actually teach a fifth grade digital citizenship class last week and somebody had mentioned something about AI. And so just, I, I was able to uh, have my laptop and basically teach with Google. So I said, do you guys know Gary Kasparov? And then we talked about chess and, you know, his defeat at the hands of um, Watson. And then, uh, is that right? And then I should be Googling it right now. Uh, or was it Deep Blue? I think maybe it was Deep Blue. I'm trying I think it's to Deep Blue, yeah. yeah. Okay. And then Watson was the one, right, who won Jeopardy. Right. And then we talked about, um, you know, just where where AI is going and and those kind of things and it's it's happening before our very eyes right I mean this um, the rise of the smart assistant we've got a, an op ed that we can chat about that that, that talks about that um, in fact I'll just I'll do a shout out to both those articles we probably won't get to them all uh, this is under the technology op eds Alexa should we trust you this is from the Atlantic November 2018 is absolutely fascinating right the ways in which we are quote you know, kind of falling for smart assistance, the ways in which we see, you know, kids engage, the ways in which they're developing context, being able to, in some cases, start in just, this is early days, but be able to have a follow-up, you know, comment uh, or, or follow-up conversation. And this voice revolution is just literally at the, we're at the dawn of it. And um, the, the how much is communicated through voice um, it, it's, it's just, uh, it's a fascinating piece, but the other one that kind of ties to this college kids doing what they want with Twitter and wired, um, is definitely a must see, uh, television series. This is from PBS frontline, October 29th and 30th, the Facebook dilemma, part one and two. And I will admit that I did not make it through part two last night without sleeping, but I watched all part one uh, a couple nights ago and it, Sadly, it makes me depressed because like one of the articles um, that we talked about in the last couple, uh, last couple of weeks that really was a, a tour de force through all the, the from from um, 2011 with Arab Spring, you know, through Myanmar and Philippines and Indonesia and Brazil, uh, the Ukraine, like all of these places where social media has been destructively co-opted by, in most cases, authoritarian voices, anti-democratic voices, and the not helplessness, but incredible challenges that any company is going to face because of the volume of content being shared and the difficulty with filtering out, well, with basic censorship, right? Deciding what violates a community standard, what are our community standards, what violates it, um, it it is it is really i'm not i'm not saying it's intractable and it's not solvable i i want to remain optimistic but i don't think you can watch that facebook pbs frontline series and emerge joyful right <laughs> so well and and uh yeah i mean i think that's that's uh, uh it's hard when a culture has been so consumed by a tool that so changes the dynamic between humans to be able to see beyond that in order to make good decisions uh, about how to engage with it. And then I got to say the, uh, you know, the overwhelming research that, that, that I've seen says that, that uh, introduction of 
these connection technologies uh, are, you know, for whatever good they bring, come with an impact. And that's why we have to think about things like balancing them out, right? And, you know, like you can't, uh, you can't live on Facebook, right? Like that's not a, a and I'm reminded by some of the uh, grandiose claims of, of early founders on, um, or that are quoted in the Accidental uh, Billionaires, uh, the book about Mark Zuckerberg and the early days of the, of the Facebook creation that, you know, that some of the dreamers of the group, Sean Parker uh, in particular, were, you know, thinking this was like the next evolution of human beings. And obviously, I don't want to diminish the power of these technologies in extraordinary ways, but, you know, with with all great technological innovation, there's going to be extraordinary shifts in culture that we have to figure out ways to to deal with and, and move along. And you know, in my mind, especially in the industry that we're in, the best way to do that is to uh, constantly be reopening discussions in our classroom and empowering our students to you know do the best that they can with the tools. And two two episodes back, episode one twelve, when Jen Carey was on uh, that video, how how humans get hacked. You've all Noah Harari and Tristan Harris. I um, had a chance Monday with our school psychologist to share a chapel talk, um, actually a repeated one for our middle and high schoolers, and then a modified one for our elementary kids. But for the middle and, and high school, we're also, of course, speaking to faculty, that was the challenge was to take a look at that video because this idea that we are hackable, that, you know, even when you know I'm flattering you, your mind will still respond to that. Even when I realize that I am living in an echo chamber and that these things are algorithmic, I mean, we are <clears throat> there's there's a you know, we're both we're it's the, the what's that the mind body um, problem in philosophy, you know, we are both biology and, and we're mind, uh, but we, uh, we are very biologically malleable. And so anyway, part of it, let's take that to the, the classroom perspective right here on the EdTech Situation Room. I mean, these are some of the challenges we need to lay before students, right? I mean, the, the students in our classrooms hopefully are going to be part of the solution to these kinds of issues because, you know, barring some kind of, of dystopian Armageddon uh, with with a nuclear exchange or some kind of solar flare or whatever. I mean, the Internet in some form is going and, and hopefully it'll be in a, in a fully interactive, non-fractured form. I mean, it, it's going to it's going to be a part of our lives and screens are going to be a part of our lives. And I think we're, we're merging with our devices eventually. So um, when you think about the tech correction and I, I don't I haven't written about this, but the there's a number of tech haters, and I don't think tech haters or screen haters fully um, seizes on it. I, I think I might even read Future Shock by Toffler over the holidays because I think we're living in a time where the pace of change is so great and the visible changes are so evident, especially with not just young people, but everybody with screens, right, that there's really a visceral backlash of folks wanting to say, man, I just... I wish we were back in the day of, you know, three channels on TV and and no screens and just all of this complexity and all of this information, you know, it would just go away. So anyway, I think that we need to engage students, hopefully, in having eyes wide open to the challenges that are being presented and then, you know, energize them to 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 be a part of that solution, because it's not it's not apparent what that solution is going to be. Right. I'm just yeah. being too pessimistic, but. <laughs> well, but I mean, I think that the the only way we're going to move forward is if we can start having honest conversations about this stuff, right? And um, you know, I think that's uh 
Oh, well, again, I, I, the, I, I do think the tech haters are not helpful in this conversation because it's always, a, well, in fact, the, the, the debate about that New York Times article a couple of weeks ago, like it's, it's not zero or hundred, right? Like it's never been about zero and hundred. And in fact, if we make it about zero and a hundred, we get no clarity. So right. there, there's, there's something somewhere in the middle. And that's an example itself of the ways in which headlines and getting clicks and getting attention, you know, drives journalists, even mainstream New York Times journalists to portray something in a very extreme way. Because as that uh, article said, or as the response article in the Columbia uh, Law Journal, um, as that as that talks about um, Columbia Journalism Review, Mm -hmm. it's not, you know, though, the those folks that are quoted don't say, I've taken all the screens away from my children. They are they're never allowed to use the devices. Right. Um, they are walking, you know, a road of, of balance. And so it's, um, yeah, it's <laughs> our, our awareness. That, and this is why I personally have been grappling with, like, what how I would like to probably teach a media literacy class, how we need media literacy classes in, in every um, – you know, school at some level. And that is, it's, it's a missing piece. And of course it does need to be integrated in everybody who's doing research and, you know, it can't just be a, a computer thing, but anyway, I've been turning over those ideas quite a bit. So why don't we talk about some more mainstream tech stuff? So <laughs> you want to tell us about yeah. exciting uh, Microsoft or other, other things? You've yeah, got- sure. I, I'm just laughing because like, you know, if you and I are tackling with this, I mean, I, yeah, it's obviously that's tough stuff. So uh, let's do a quick some Microsoft news. Unfortunately, it's not super great news, but uh, we've reported here a number of times in the past in the podcast that Windows 10 has moved towards a uh, every six-month update model. It's a software-as-a-service model, which means that it shows up, um, you know, a new version shows up every six months. And uh, you don't buy it. I mean, like you don't, Apple, yeah, you don't, yeah, buy, you don't it. buy it. It's a, it's a one, one-time purchase that probably comes with your PC anyways. And they were basically giving it away to older, um, to older um, uh, PC users that were on Windows 7 or better. But uh, the, I, unfortunately, I wasn't uh, around during the time when this happened in October, but the October update was dramatically flubbed, and uh, I this did not happen to me because, to be honest, I was so busy during the months of September and October. I didn't have an opportunity to upgrade the. I, I have one PC in my life that that is a, a relatively uh, a frequent user. It's my my work laptop, and and I, I didn't have time to upgrade. I usually do right almost immediate upgrader because I have other computers around in case something gets blitzed, but uh, updaters were reporting that the new version of Windows, the October 2000 update of Windows, was actually deleting files uh, as it updated, and um, it's not a super huge deal if you are, you know, only storing meaningful files in the cloud, which is my strategy, um, which itself has some issues too for for some folks, but uh, if you are storing anything meaningfully locally that you don't have cloud backup of those files, were essentially gone, and there were some workarounds that some people found useful in order to deal with that, but the majority of people that lost files, those files were lost for good. So Windows pulled the update, uh, completely obliviated the update. Uh, They worked with a series of users that that were um, early adopters to attempt to get files back, and my understanding from reading materials was that that was sometimes successful, sometimes not, and then they then tried to release a second uh, version of that software 
software to, uh, uh, they call them insiders, it's early adopters that choose to be on a fast track, that version had issues. And so finally, the October update became the November update. And so two quick articles. One of them is from uh, yesterday's edition of The Verge that talks about how the October 2018 update is now available. Uh, It's available in two ways. It'll be slowly rolled out via Windows Update, or you can go to Microsoft's Update website and download either a piece of software that forces the update, um, or you can start over and wipe a machine and, and, and do it from new, which, to be honest, is usually my strategy um, uh, when dealing with Windows-style updates. But the important piece here is the other article from The Verge from yesterday that talks about that Microsoft really wants to focus on uh, quality after a series of, of, of kind of buggy releases this year. And I will tell you, I mean, Windows, uh, I had the opportunity recently to use a late 2015 Windows 10 uh, uh, operating system. And then the I've been using the newest version every time it's released. And it is substantially smoother. It looks nicer. It seems more functional. It has good uh, user experience from my personal experience. But I agree with the article to say that 2018's releases were pretty buggy and uh, Windows uh, needs to find a balance there between the two. Now, it's likely if you're a school tech director or if you're an end user at a school, you're waiting for these updates anyways. At least a month is the standard protocol for a lot of folks, but if not, you know, uh, uh, at least a version backwards so that you uh, you know, aren't rolling out a piece of software that's going to kind of bork your, 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 all of your end users' machines. But it's interesting that my Microsoft is now focusing on that, you know, stable quality issue as opposed to getting new features released. Well, they are they are supporting that in word and not in deed. Um, we have had six of our lab computers, like of you know forty. We've got two language lab that language labs that have about twenty um, Windows now ten machines in, and uh, it's it's a mystery why their screens are black. They've they've just gone dark, and and we can't even get an external monitor to go. It's one of the one of the issues that we're working, um, we are, I think it's due, due to updates. I don't know why, uh, those machines got updated. These are, we use deep freeze to, uh, freeze the machine. So unless they're unfrozen, then they really aren't, you know, they, they're not supposed to be able to, to change their OS. But, uh, one of the, the couple things I picked out of those articles, number one, Microsoft has really changed their process almost in a crowdsourcing way in terms of beta developers. So similar to the way that Apple, you know, if you want to uh, be a uh, developer, I think you still had to, don't you still have to pay to do that maybe, or maybe not. Maybe you can just register and, and do it. I know for Chrome, if you just want to install, you know, the latest build or whatever, you, then you, you can do that and you can run that and provide feedback. So Microsoft, though, is, this is a substantial change for them uh, to have people providing that kind of feedback. But even though they've got that, you know, that, that didn't avert these problems that, that they've had. Um, but the other thing is you uh, are, are basically better off just waiting for the update to push because, and I don't know if it was in these articles, but, but I've read recently, you know, if you, if you go ahead and click and say update, then it is going to pull something that that wouldn't necessarily push to you and and so that's part of what happened here with this October update anyway they've boy they've got to figure this out and um we are taking a look at, at for those you know users that are just really staunch laptop users at school or laptop users staunch windows os users 
we've been traditionally Dell uh, for most of most all of our PCs, with just a few exceptions. But we are looking at Microsoft. I hope that they can work this out as far as an alternative system, what Windows S, um, you know, some things that that an OS that is better cloud managed. Um, Intune is something we're going to uh, be starting to take a look at, which is their mobile device management platform. And, um, you know, it's it, it it's good to see Microsoft making some of these changes, but these are some major, major blunders, especially with regard to, you know, the deletion of files and things like that. I mean, that's just right. crazy for a, their flagship OS to be having those kinds of blunders. So, right. Well, and, and uh, you mentioned Chrome and, and I'll just give a, a brief shout out. And I, I, we've talked about this quite a bit, but I, I mean, I'm, 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 basically Chrome guy now. Like I've been traveling a lot in the last uh, couple of months. Uh, I'm actually going on vacation next week, leaving the country for a week and a half to go to Costa Rica. And I'll be bringing a, I brought a Chromebook uh, with me to uh, site visits in Northeastern Montana for a week and a half. I brought a Chromebook to actually every trip. I don't, I don't carry around either a Mac or PC laptop anymore. I can survive 100% on a Chromebook. And the great thing about a Chromebook, I have had updates, blitz Chromebooks before, and all it took was rebooting and, and so-called power washing, uh, that device and starting over again. And I spent a lot of time in the beta and developer channels, which means it's inherently unstable. Once in a while, it's so unstable that it stops working or it, it blitzes something that I needed to work pretty, pretty sanely. And that's a really great thing about the Chromebook environment, right? Um, that it, it, it allows you that, that opportunity to start over again when you need to. So, yeah, I agree. I think in the same way that I know that uh, the Android community has been pushing uh, Google to work on both polish and functionality and kind of uninteresting things. For example, uh, Android 9 or Android Pie, as it's called, uh, worked on battery life, was a key piece of the Android uh, uh, most recent release, even though it didn't release a lot of new features or radically different user experience or, or, or user input experience. It did focus pretty aggressively on um, a better... Um, a better, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, a more st more stable operating system, right? Like that, you know, don't focus as much on something interesting visually or, 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 you know, wicked new features. Just make the stuff that exists work better. And I've heard a lot of great compliments for that particular operating system. I haven't had a chance to use it yet, but uh, it uh, apparently is much better. So interesting stuff. Here's a positive article, uh, which I was thrilled to read. This is from Inc. Magazine on October 31st on Halloween. Drawing is the fastest, most effective way to learn, according to new research. And I'll drop into the show notes also the original journal article, which is about six months old, but or maybe, yeah, uh, from August, so uh, not quite. But uh, Sage Journals from August 30th, the surprisingly powerful influence of drawing on memory. But uh, the author, uh, which who Jessica Stillman, who's, Summarizing the the research is pointing out there's there's just not a lot of research about this sketching and doodling. I'm a real big fan of sketch noting. In fact, Sylvia Duckworth will give a shout out to Sylvia and and a link to her new book on sketch noting. She's been doing a great series, which sadly I've not been able to make time to do, called Sketch Note Fever. But you know, drawing and and sketching. Um, I, I, I love that as a strategy. It's one of the show with media uh, strategies. I feel like it's, it's like it is language translation, right? You're taking in things through your ears and through your eyes, and then it's coming out your hand as icons, as drawings, and, and sometimes a mix of words. Uh, but anyway, I was thrilled to see this, and 
Um, of course, this is one study, right? So this isn't conclusive and this isn't like, you know, take this to the bank with all of your, um, all, you know, cash in all your chips. But this was a Canadian research team. Um, they had a, a group of volunteers and they're asked to memorize a list of words and half were instructed to write them down. The others were told to draw them in order to memorize them. And then the doodlers, you know, really beat the, the ones who were just writing them down. So I was glad to see this and, um, uh, you know, would love, I, I, I want to hopefully find some ways we have our elementary art teacher who I've taught some, uh, some after-school steam classes with, we talked about doing one just on sketch noting. Uh, so hopefully that will be in the cards at some point. Um, cause it's something that stretches me. I'm not a naturally gifted artist by any means, but just like Pictionary, the point is not to draw amazing art. It is to right. deepen your own learning and your own understanding of something. And, and then if, it, you know, if it can provide a visual, Stimulus for you to be able to remember those things and retell what you heard and what you've learned. Right. Um, we have one of our high school biology teachers who's been, you know, experimenting with that a little bit. And, and actually we, the Apple news, you know, with this new Apple, Apple pencil two, uh, and just the, the magic of that stylus. I really am. I find that just very, very compelling. Um, the, the power to, be able to, you know, decide how do you want to to input on this? Do you want to use a keyboard? Fine. Do you want to use your voice? Fine. Do you want to you want to draw? Do you want to write with with your handwriting? Right. So, well, and this reminds me of the research that I believe we cited on on uh, the podcast a couple of years ago. But but there was a lot of of mainstream press about the the research that says that uh, handwriting notes is more effective than typing notes. And the onus behind that research was that, that typing is an inefficient way to take notes for memory because you're essentially dictating, right? You're taking dictation and you're, you're, you're creating a word for word transcript in a lot of cases. But if you are handwriting something down, you're making conscious decisions, um, to what, what is the important part of this, right? You're not taking dictation. You're, you're, you're doing higher order thinking. Right. You exactly. Know, you, you, yeah. You are cognitively, the cognitive load and challenge is different when you're translating into a visual vocabulary and not simply doing a replication. Right. And then the other piece of this too, that's, that's also, I think super interesting is that, uh, the, uh, this has to be similar. I'm, I'm looking forward to going to take a look at the study, but I'm almost certain this has to be part of that case. But the, 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 there is also some, some suggestion that the physical, like using your hand is the important piece here, right? Like it is a, it, it, it's all these things work together in order to create memory. Um, and then the other thing that, um, and I, I, I need to read this a little further. I'll probably do this in a, in a future uh, podcast. There are even fonts now that people are recommending that increase memory because you have to work a little harder to read it. Like there are, they're not, they're not easy to read fonts if, if, if that makes any sense at all. And the idea behind it is, is that you are actually having to fill in some of the blanks with your, with your brain, but that increased juice that's going to your head to be able to process that also helps memory. So whenever you can kind of work your brain out, uh, that's always going to help in the increase of memory. Now, of course, you know, like uh, don't take any of this stuff to mean that just that and that and only that is going to bring you know magical success um i uh laughed a couple of times of uh you know teachers would hear things like chewing gum increases brain power so they'll hand out you know gum during a test and of course the brain power is really when they're studying not when they're taking the exam but still you know all these things together i think draw an interesting picture 
of how learning works. Drawing an interesting picture. Very good. Where yep, would there you like go. to go next? Um, I want to go to an interesting article, but I was not able to actually find the tool today, and I only spent two or three minutes digging. But uh, Pandora is working on a new project that they're calling the Podcast Genome Project, uh, which is apparently launching in beta on iOS and Android. And for those of you that don't know the background about Pandora, um, and I was thinking about this the, the other day, Pandora has got to be 16, 17 years old by now, but Pandora is a radio service that is about taking playlists and based on your preferences, we'll take a, a playlist and create a, or do some music discovery for you. So create a string of songs based on that. And what they've done is they've taken a, 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 almost a language or categorization of music, a taxonomy, if you will, and have prescribed hundreds and in some cases thousands of attributes to music so that if you are really into like a heavy bass line and uh, electronic drums and uh, female vocals, that it's going to find other songs that have a heavy bass line and electronic drums and a female vocal and a jazz style. It's going to string songs together that are very similar in that way. Now, in a lot of ways, you know, Pandora's logarithm is kind of obvious, right? If you like to uh, you know, play jazz music, it's going to play you other kinds of jazz music. But the idea here is, is that if you like one kind of music, it can be a discovery for another. Um, well, they're now working on a, I guess the best way to describe this is, is Pandora for podcasts. They're doing the podcast genome project. It's now launching in beta um, and it takes 1500 attributes, um, including the kind of topics, the production style, the host profiles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's going to try, you know, podcast discovery, basically. So if you like this podcast, you're bound to like these other podcasts. The thing that's super interesting about this, and, and the reason why that I even ended up on this article is, of course, uh, you know, the, the article itself talks about how, uh, uh, you know, but podcasts themselves aren't a panacea. A lot of people can't make money in them, yada, yada, yada. But, uh, and it, it seems like, and it's always very surprising to me, based on the extraordinary amount of high-quality content available via podcasting, not the least of which is, you know, this truly beautiful podcast that we're hosting, um, you know, it still seems to be kind of a niche market about, you know, who is really consuming podcasts at a really high rate. So I think it's great that there's more attempts to try to create ways to help people discover other types of podcasts. I really also love about Pandora the fact that it's trainable. So um, we went with the girl, I went with the girls on Sunday night to see the new movie about Queen, Bohemian Rhapsody, which I, I just loved. It was awesome. So I have probably consumed last night and, you know, especially, well, just in the evenings this week, like, you know, 30, 30 Queen videos or whatever. And sure. so I, I like that part of, you know, Google is, is giving that to me that, hey, you liked that video. You're going to hear another one or, you know, I'm going to recommend this. And I, I've loved working with Pandora over time. And even now with, with like Google Assistant being able to say, you know, hey, geez, thumbs up, thumbs down. And then my understanding is that those are contextual to the channel and the station. I hope they are because, you know, in some, I, I love Billy Joel, but I don't want him on, you know, my Sonny and Cher channel. There you go. You just got more information than you needed. Um, anyway, I was just, we were having, I'm, was, it, I love, I love being able to play with that. Right. And it is, it, it's like living in Hogwarts with like Harry Potter. Cause you've got these different words you can say and you can make this, this device do things. So 
it'll be interesting to see if they have the same kind of thing with podcasts uh, because discovery of content is a huge thing, right? Having an algorithmic, um, you know, superpower to, to be able to discover other, you know, educational technology podcasts and, but just more nuanced than that, right? If right. you're interested in, in a particular um, podcast, I mean, that's where, that's where Google and this, this is, we've been talking about this with YouTube. It's the, the addiction and that kind of stuff comes on too, because, you know, they'll know that, uh, you know, X million other people who liked that video also watched, you know, this video, um, but it can, uh, there, there's different, there's rabbit holes that that can take you down. Um, but it can also be a, a wonderful thing. So I'm excited to see that as well. And much like we're seeing the renaissance and the early days of voice assistance and smart assistance and just, you know, speech to text in general, um, I'm very excited and very positive about, about podcasting and where that is all going. I don't know that we have an article in this show if it was last time or a read it somewhere else. But, you know, just talking about how many um, folks are learning now, I think it was from last week's show, via audio, yep. right? And, and and through podcasts and through through Audible. I, I'm finding myself now a little more than maybe I have in the past just saying, okay, I'm just going to take a break. You know, I just, you know, I don't, it's actually not good for creativity to have a constant stream of input. Um, we need to have times of, of taking a break and having right. Having uh, the uh, the the stream of inputs, you know, si you know, silent for a while, but I think it's great. And what what an incredible day that we live in, you know. I mean, who would have thought? <laughs> growing up in the in the eighties, which I'll date myself. I mean, that you'd live in a time when you could sit in your living room. You know, I watched the the whole Queen concert from from Wembley Stadium in '86, and all these interviews, and it's just it's incredible. So yeah, there's there's some positive to go with your Facebook and social media negativity today. Yeah. Well, and while we're doing that, I I saw that you'd posted the um the update on our 2018 priorities from YouTube. Yeah. And there's a couple of great stats in there that I, I wanted to share. And I, I can't remember if we've talked about this a little bit or, or not on the podcast before I took my brief hiatus, but I've really actually this three or four technologies I've been working really hard in the last six months to have a great positive relationship with. One of them is Reddit. Um, I, I think Reddit has become a, a, a much more pleasurable experience for me, partly because I got rid of all the political chitter chatter on there. And now I spend time on nerdy stuff, right? Which uh, Reddit has plenty of, but the same is all also been uh, true of YouTube. YouTube has always been a great spot for me, but you know it's it's not been a, a destination where I've, I've I've taken a lot of channels other than podcasts I listen to through other means, video podcasts I listen to through other means, and sometimes subscribe there. Well, I've dramatically expanded my um, my viewership of YouTube in the last six months, and I found a number of excellent channels that I think are the spirit of YouTube. Right? Uh, there's a, a guy, it's Steve at MRE, MRE Info 1989, who uh, does MRE reviews, and uh, uh, the production quality is only medium, but it's that's still a good excellent. Montana topic, by the way. Right? It is. It is a really good Montana topic. Uh, excellent, really well done, really interesting stuff. Uh, there's a, uh, a retired gentleman in New Jersey called. 
called Scout Crafter, who takes old tools, 100-year-old tools, and refurbishes them to brand new and, and talks about how he does that. Um, and, and that's a, a one of, of dozens of channels I've started watching fairly regularly. And, you know, if you have an esoteric interest or one that is maybe not super mainstream, like refurbishing 100-year-old hand tools, like, there, there, there is no alternative to that. There, even uh, community access television, where in the middle of the night you can watch talk shows uh, broadcast to, you know, half a dozen people in a large city, it's still not going to have some guy who's refurbishing, you know, uh, uh, century-old hand tools uh, to brand new again. And so, you know, let's 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 have a moment of acknowledgement of, of how amazing that is and how it can spread a lot of craft or folk knowledge in ways that we've never had the power to do before. And uh, let's take it to the academic uh, to term, right? We're talking about the long tail. So the long tail, you know, is uh, a power law graph. And off to the far right, you know, we, we have a diminishing asymptotic line that is going to get smaller and smaller. <clears throat> and the way I usually talk to people about the long, long tail is like, Walmart or your grocery store. I mean, there's only so many products they can carry, especially if it's a, um, well, whatever. I mean, they may, may have some local things, but they're going to decide what kinds of products they're going to carry. And they're going to have to have a certain amount of consumption in order right. to keep that on the shelf. But when it comes to information and videos and things like that, you know, we, we might not have a lot of people into you know, evaluating MREs here in the Oklahoma City area. I don't know. We probably actually have a lot of people into that. But, um, you know, distributed across the entire United States, across the entire world, there's a lot of folks. And so that is one of the, the things the Internet has enabled is the is the long tail. Of course, we also kind of see that now with outliers in the way in which the the megaphone of social media, you know, gets gets to be utilized by them. But that's a good vocabulary term if you don't already know it to pass along and show and you can – Check that out in Wikipedia. And then uh, actually the Wikipedia article um, in section four talks about Chris Anderson and Clay Shirky. Clay Shirky is one of my favorite authors um, writing Here Comes Everybody and, and some other books. And so anyway, Chris Anderson, um, it says, term that as the notion of looking at the, at the tale itself as a new market uh, and economics, right? There's opportunities now that we can have to have this niche audience, whether you're a creator and you're just going to find your tribe and you're going to use Patreon or other kinds of platforms with micropayments to sustain yourself and be able to keep creating. That's um, a, that, that is related to the, the long tail or whether you're going to create some kind of a niche product and it's not going to be something that has to be you know consumed by the mainstream. But if you connect again with your tribe or with those folks that are in that long tail, good stuff. Absolutely true. Okay, uh, well, uh, on that article, before we leave it, uh, that sure. was the, the creator blog post that was from October 22nd. Um, they actually talk about some politics in Europe in that article, which is which is worth mentioning uh, the ways in which the uh, privacy uh, regulations and the, the takedown threats from Europe, you know, threaten creators. Um, she talks about EU Parliament voting on Article 13 copyright legislation that could drastically change the Internet you see today. Um, that could mean, for instance, that, you know, you can't have fair use. Um, I, we've, I think we've probably talked before about how that might affect memes and other things, but you know, when you have some short content, short clips that you're going to have, and you're going to, you're going to utilize that. So this was interesting because it's updates to YouTube and it's talking about, um, the the YouTube studio, which is uh, replacing the creator studio. It's still in a beta 
but it's uh, new editing tools and, and tools for looking at your analytics and, and just being able to basically manage your channel and your content and learn more about that. <clears throat> but laid in here, in addition to those technical updates, was talking about some real serious updates regarding the ways in which platforms have not been responsible up heretofore uh, to rigorously police all kinds of content and actually it takes stuff down. Of course, we did have YouTube uh, come up with their, oh, what's it called? It's a recognition engine. I'm trying to think of the name of it, but it's, you know, if, if music is being used, that's part of how they um, were able to, you know, strike deals with uh, music publishers and, and copyright owners so that they can get a cut of the of the ad revenue um, when their, their music is being um played you know I'm trying, and i'm not i'm not thinking of, of what that's called um, but anyway some some important updates and and those also included some some political things which again are important to talk about network neutrality to what degree are we going to hold the platform owner harmless and to what degree are they going to be required to take things down and when you have laws that are very dramatically different in this world um you know uh, YouTube, there's the other Google article we've got in there is from uh, Columbia Journalism Review. Google CEO, China argument doesn't hold water. And this is talking about the uh, Sundar Pichai um, decision to go ahead and move into China and have a censored version of its search engine. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? The The world is not monolithic. We know this. I think that a lot of us had, you know, very optimistically naive perspectives about how the internet was going to cause a lot of walls to go down and, and free a lot of uh, folks who would, were, were being bound to, you know, not be able to express themselves, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, this, maybe this is part of the text correction too, Jason. It's the, you know, the re the, the reassertion of, of local laws and trying to say, right. wait a minute, United States or internet people, you know, your values are not our values. Uh, we want to, you know, have have a different set of of regulations that govern what people see, and um, not just ha and and that can have an effect beyond the bounds of of a country. And so, when every when every uh, website has to comply with a different set of regulations and laws, depending on the country where their content is shown, we have this right now with GDPR, where um, I I use Tor sometimes, and when mm -hmm. you use the Tor browser. Uh, you are basically spun out to some server somewhere else. And so it might think that you're in Luxembourg or you're in Australia or somewhere else. And so sometimes when you visit the, the LA Times or these other, um, you know, websites they'll, that, that aren't GDPR ready, they'll say, hey, uh, sorry, but we can't serve this to you now because we're not, you know, complying with your laws yet. So that's a really different phenomenon to see in the uh, on the Internet and not necessarily a great one. Right. And yeah, and I've, I've noticed the same thing on the Tor browser as well. So, and you know, I, uh, although I will say, <laughs> uh, related to that, that when that, those, uh, those rules first rolled out earlier this year, I know that some people that were traveling in Europe at the time said they liked going to some U.S. sites because they scaled back the advertising dramatically that for a while some major news sites were only serving up, uh, pretty bare bones websites with very little tracking and then more importantly, no advertising on it because they had to figure out a way to comply with, um, uh, the new sets of rules. So yeah, a very much interesting piece. So, um, I noticed something that uh, was hidden here that I think you put in here, Wes, that it is the 10-year anniversary of the, I think it's the original Shift Happen video. 
Yeah. So uh, good old Scott McLeod. If you don't follow McLeod on Twitter, definitely need to follow Scott. Um, he was uh, the person, along with Carl Fish, who is a Colorado educator back in 2008 that put together um, this video. And it was originally something that Carl was sharing for his teachers at school. And then Scott helped, I think, you know, put it to some some music and this reflection. This is a Ed Surge article. Has shift happened? Revisiting a viral video from 2008. This is from November 6th. And so they actually interview Scott and um, talk about, you know, what's happened, what hasn't happened. And they're saying a lot of the job shift kinds of things have happened. There's a lot of statistics in here reflecting economics, projections for economics and then society. And, and it was designed to try to create some immediacy on the part of educators and, and also just, uh, you know, saying, Hey, we, we need to look at changing. We can't just do the same thing. And, and his conclusion is, you know, surprise, surprise, school, schools are slow to change. And as they, you know, were perhaps a little, uh, more optimistic than has proven to be valid as far as how quickly schools and educational institutions writ large were going to and are going to adopt, adapt to the new environment. So do you remember what what do you remember about this video and did you see this at a at a conference or how did how did you encounter this first? Yeah, it, well, and it you you remember this time, Wes? Like the videos like this were at the beginning of, you know, every um, every invited speaker into a school. Most conference keynote showed the sort of thing. I'm sure both you and I use these videos uh, uh, at at the time quite aggressively. And you know, I always uh, I bought to some of this stuff to be honest. And 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 for being a nerd and a guy that's a pretty big uh, tech advocate, I've always been a bit leery about uh, about technology's impact on the classroom. Room. Um, and then one of the things that I, I've said later on was that, you know, I the notion of, you know, our kids won't be in jobs or jobs that don't even exist yet. Rah, 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 rah. And then 2010, I took a job that didn't exist when I went to college. So, uh, you know, like that, that's part of that. That's that's part of it. My, my own personal journey is part of that process. Right. But, you know, it's it uh, I I do think that that was an important warning is a strong word because I don't think that was their, their intent, but it was a, certainly a message that we need to start looking at things just a little bit differently. Right now that said, I like the whole notion of, of, of the, the fact that in the future that uh, folks would, would have, you know, 18 different jobs and all those that are being tossed around. I think part of the reason why that's the case is because I think the nature of work has become um, much, much, much more inconsistent in, in a negative way for workers, right? Like, for example, you know, if you're going from job to job to job, it's hard to save up or have a meaningful retirement. If you are going from job to job to job to job, the chances are you're not going to have uh, as consistent health care as I think you need to be a survivor in 2018. But you ignore all those kind of uh, uh, factors. You know, I it, it was an important message. And I think Wes and I are both amongst the field that said, you know, we need to do we think thinking about this first and foremost as an opportunity to adapt schools for, for the better. So yeah, it's, it's interesting that it's 10 years old now. A couple of quick ones. Uh, this is very interesting. Um, <clears throat> the Atlantic November 6th, that cute baby bear video reveals a problem with drones. You know, different articles will flash around, especially Facebook, as far as being forwarded around. And so this one was Oh, so cute. And look at this baby bear and how it's, but it turns out that there was a drone operator 
who was flying really close and was probably the cause of these bears distress. And so there's a cautionary tale here about <clears throat> drones and wildlife. And then also the ways in which, you know, social media and even the forwarding of that, you know, is, you know, potentially going to encourage uh, more bad behavior when it comes to uh, to drones and, and wildlife. And then a couple to, to pick up here real quick under the face. I, I put Facebook, Instagram, mentioned the PBS Frontline special, but um, I think you had dropped in the Fortune magazine from November 8th. Facebook is the least trusted major tech company when it comes to safeguarding personal data poll finds. I found it kind of amazing that Amazon was at the top of that. Maybe, I guess, because we're we're buying stuff from them. But, you know, for me, um, I would I would certainly put Apple and Google ahead of both. Definitely, I'd leave Facebook at the end, but I put them ahead of Amazon. Uh, but then that's where we have the Verge article from November 14th about the human rights groups wanting Facebook to offer due process for takedown, which, again, is, is pretty interesting, right? It's a private company. They don't have to do this. They're not subject to, you know, the Constitution and, and things like that. But, of course, our expectation in the West and our liberal democracies is that we're going to have some due process there. Uh, but then the last one in that section uh, is, is from The Verge today. Instagram starts rolling out dashboard that shows how much time you spend on it. And I will say that we have started taking a look on our iOS devices with iOS 12, the um, screen time. Um, we're not actually running the, the what is it called, Disney uh, Go. It's been a while since I've been talking about this, but it's the, the little router um, attachment that makes a VPN and does filtering, you know, for the kids' devices and all this. Um, we're, we're actually using some of those screen time controls. And so this is part of the tech correction, which Jason has, you know, been talking to us about for months. And we're seeing the companies that, you know, profit from the more time we spend on them having to respond because of the public pressure to, you know, provide some screen time monitoring tools. And in the case of iOS 12, um, some actual controls, which my youngest daughter doesn't like because now her, you know, device stops working at 10 o'clock um, because we have that limit that's on there. Um, I've, you know, just used mine kind of mildly to take a look at it. My wife has dramatically changed her consumption of Facebook and even Netflix and actually switched to more TED Talks in the morning. She varies. So we're back to we're back to like uh, NCIS, I think. But anyway, it's uh, valuable to get feedback on how we're consuming media. And that's going to be an enduring thing we're going to need. Right. Because it's it's good for us to be thoughtful about how we're spending our time. And if you you know look at some of these graphs and go, oh, my gosh, I spent, you know, how many hours on Twitter or on Facebook? Um, you know, there there are some better ways to spend our time, not to say that we're, you know, we're not screen haters here, uh, but we do right. want to be thoughtful and deliberate yeah. users of the tools. Yep, absolutely so. Okay, let's see. Well, we're, I just noticed we're near the top of the hour, so shall we geek of the week it? That sounds good, unless there's just anything else you wanted to, to pick up quick. That's kind of why I shot through a few of those other ones. Um, but we did a pretty good job covering... Oh, uh, I'll just say this one because it's funny. Um, the Mozilla Foundation has released their uh, report of what they consider to be the creepiest Christmas gifts or creepiest gifts ideas. And it starts with the, the, the least creepy to the most creepy. Um, the least creepy on the list are things like the Kindle, uh, PlayStation, uh, the Nintendo Switch is on the least creepy list. If you go all the way to the bottom, the creepiest things include the Amazon Echo, the Google Home, the Amazon Show, 
um, a couple of drones, the Nest camera, um, and, you know, obviously these things are, you know, pretty, um, um, uh, I guess for the for lack of a better way of putting it, are, you know, things that I think you know what you're bringing into your home when you buy them, but you may want to peruse uh, the Mozilla Foundation's thoughts about what is creepy and what is not. And the worst offender there at the bottom is the Freddy Baby Monitor, yeah. which easily hacked, uses a default password of 123, and doesn't even have a manufacturer's privacy policy. So. Yes, there you go. Yeah. So, and I, I can think of few constituencies in the world that are, that are, are, are more paranoid, um, about safety than the new parents. So yeah, don't, don't buy the Freddy baby monitor. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll do my geeks of the week real quick. Um, couple fun ones and then, uh, I'll do the serious one first. So <clears throat> for our show, we need to, we want to, um, locally archive both an audio and a video version. So folks can, can download and I'm, I should look at some statistics, but I'm, I'm pretty sure most folks, maybe it's just because I, I consume mainly audio, but I, I think most people, we're over 50 subscribers now on our YouTube channel, by the way, but, um, most folks are probably listening to us. Anyway, we've, that's not that difficult to do, you know, in QuickTime Player to export an audio only M4A version. And then I use iTunes to convert that into a lightweight 32 kilobit you know, version that will play well and, and not take a lot of download time. The, the bigger challenge is taking the video, right? So YouTube um, will let us, since it's our channel and it's our content, download that content, but it only lets you download it in the, in the high definition uh, quality, which is a huge file. And so what we have done in the past, I've done in the past, is use some of these third-party app, you know, software applications, which are technically not terms of service compliant with YouTube. So it's kind of a cat and mouse about what works. And then downloaded a 320p, which is half the size of a of a of a seven. Well, I guess not. It's not quite that. But anyway, it's it's about half the size. It works out to be a little over 100 megs for an hour-long show. Well, last week we reached an impasse because I couldn't find a website that would let me do that, and so that pushed me to explore. Um, a, a, a graphical front end for a wonderfully powerful set of tools that's called FFmpeg. That is a Linux-based compressor, and so if you run a Mac, you have access to it, but it all works from the command line, and I'm really not much of a command line guy. I, I do some stuff, but not a lot. So this is a graphical front end. It's called a comprehensive media tool for Mac OS. It is shareware, uh, but it gives you 10 free uses, and, and I think I probably will buy it. I used it last week to compress the show. And uh, I have a link there to Backstory, which is the blog post that I wrote about that. So pretty cool, pretty geeky, uh, but a free, well, if you want to use the command line, a free option for, for being able to compress your video. And then for, I think it's like, I think it's like, tw I don't remember what it is. It's in pounds. I haven't bought it yet, but it's it, it doesn't seem like it's going to be that crazy to purchase. And then really quickly, um, two fun ones, uh, the Noun Project, which is a wonderful icon website. That is Creative Commons and just just superb. And I actually helped my wife um, get a bunch of icons that her kids have been doing narrative slideshows this week. And they've integrated icons as well as photos of this uh, soup project that they did. They have a really fun bot called the Thankful Bot. And so I will put uh, the tweet of this out. I am thankful for the podcaster Jason, or, or for podcasting and for Jason. So there's a little icon of a guy podcasting and the state of Montana shown in all of its, uh, you know, doesn't quite do justice to uh, the width of your state. But anyway, it's the iconic shape of Montana. And so you will type in two words and then it will make you a little graphic that you can share. So you can use your visual vocabulary and help, you know, help deepen your own learning with that. 
And then the last thing was memes. I'm not a big guy for memes, but this was a hilarious one. And it was called me voting in 2016 versus me voting in 2018. <laughs> and that is just hilarious. If you want to, you know, scroll down there and see all the, the very, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> I love the dog. Anyway, depending on your political persuasion, you may or may not find that as funny as I do, but. Right, yeah, I thought those were pretty good too. So, and then uh, a bunch of my friends had to end up creating their own on 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 Facebook last week. So, okay, well, mine is not nearly um, as interesting, but is an interesting tool for a pretty unique use case. So, uh, I help run the Montana Jill Academy, a state virtual school located um, on the University of Montana campus in Missoula, Montana, and we have usually hundreds. Uh, it's our, our number one uh, content area by department. Hundreds of students taking world language classes at NPDA, uh, mostly because uh, you know a lot of smaller schools across the state they can either uh, afford uh, a world language teacher or can attract one uh, to the uh, rural areas of Montana. So lots of kids taking distance learning classes in in the state of Montana. Well, it is a challenge to support uh, students on hundreds of different platforms on typing non-American English characters. Uh, to help uh, facilitate their language instruction. And so we found this great app earlier this year. Uh, this is uh, copycare.cc, and it has kind of a full alternative character keyboard. It includes some um, um, arrows, symbols, emoji, etc. But for students that are lacking a way to figure out a way to, to do the key combinations required to get alternative characters, uh, this is a great way they can simply copy and paste um, uh, to their... Um, uh, to their uh, memory to then paste into like a test or a quiz or a document. And it's really sweet because you just press on the letter and it copies your clipboard. So it's super fast and works on all sorts of devices. So we've been very fortunate um, as of late to be able to utilize this particular technology um, with our students at the Montana Digital Academy. I've muted myself. So anyway, that's, that's awesome. Good share. My what my yeah my wife dreams of having a mute button but so far I don't have that not not no. not meant to be so <laughs> all right well that was a great show it's great to be to have you back and um, are we going to be on we don't have Thanksgiving next week we got two weeks for Thanksgiving so any any special uh, arrangements we need to be making for upcoming weeks. Um, well, um, I'm I'm good for next Wednesday. I'll be joining. You're going to Costa Rica. Yeah, right? I'll be joining from Costa Rica next week. Okay, fantastic. Well, we you think we we can do the same time? Yes, definitely the same time. And then the week after, I it's up in the air. I'm traveling that day, but I'll let you know what airline flights look like. See if you can just drop down to Tegucigalpa and say hi to Marta. You know. Okay, there you go. <laughs> just a <laughs> shout out, shout out to Marta. Out. Yeah. She, she's leading our fan base in Central America, as far as we know. So yeah, there you go. So, so Wes, where can people find you on the internet? I am allegedly on Twitter at wfryer, and I am on speedofcreativity.org, where I have actually posted a few more more blog posts, and I think maybe my uh, my wife and I'll do a reflection. I haven't. I've been kind of a pod fader on my main channel there, but those are the primary spots uh, we have shared. Now, uh, three different, but they've also been separated by grade, uh, digital citizenship presentations this year. Um, and those have all been shared on our digital citizenship website for school, which you can find at digsit.us. 
And I am located at Tech Savvy Teach on the Twitters. Um, I also work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education. Blog.ncc.org is our location there, although we are a little more active on Facebook and uh, Twitter. And keep in mind that NCC registration is now open for our conference end of February in lovely Seattle, Washington. And there's that rumor on the street that Dr. Fryer will be joining us for that conference this year. That's right. And this action here, this little production we've got going here is the Edtech Situation Room. We are a weekly podcast. We are live at 9 p.m. Uh, Central, 8 p.m. Mountain Time. And I think we're at a different hour UTC now. Maybe it's 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. UTC, some other hour. You can join us live. We love to have people in the chat room. We post out a link where you can join us in the YouTube chat room uh, during the actual broadcast. However, you can always download a copy of our podcast at our website, at techsr.com, where you can also find a... Um, um, a, uh, audio version. Audio version of that tiny audio version for you to download. Also, the show notes are located there. And we're also available on wherever finer podcasts are aggregated, which includes things like Stitcher Radio, Pocket Cast, which is, by the way, releasing a new UI in the upcoming week, um, a Downcast, great iOS app. We're in all those directories, so feel free to uh, listen to us there. And if you happen to be on Stitcher or you're using the iTunes uh, podcast library, give us a review. That helps other people find the podcast and also uh, uh, logarithmically puts us up on search engine results on those various platforms. Um, until next time, we wish you a great week. Uh, we will join you next week for a special Thanksgiving edition. Maybe we could do a brief well, what I'm thinking about. For Thanksgiving. Uh, Isn't it? No, it's next week. Next week is Thanksgiving. It is. Okay, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> it's a sign, folks. It's a sign. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, vacation is coming soon, Wes. There's relief I'm coming. i to get my turkey there. this weekend. Thank you, Jason. See, yeah. there's, there's important reasons we do the show. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So we'll see you next week for a Thanksgiving edition of EdTech Situation Room, and we hope you stay safe and savvy. Have a great week. Adios.